Good morning, church. It's good to be here this morning, isn't it? It's good to be in the house of the Lord. And um, yeah, quite a few of the, the men are away to Fiji. And I'm pretty sure that they all went to escape my preaching. But <laughs> uh, look, before I start, I want to say that this is quite a strong message um, that I'm going to be preaching from. So I, I feel slightly uncomfortable. But um, uh, I just want to, before I start, I want to really commend um, the work that God is doing at this church through Mark and Cheryl. And I just think it's amazing that we've come such a long way in just like one year. And, you know, to have mission trips already happening, I think it's absolutely amazing how, how far along God has brought us. And I'm really looking forward to, to see what God has in store for us next year. So, um, you know, lately I've just been reading my, my way through, through the Gospels and I was just con- contemplating on, on how nice it would be to have spent just every moment with Jesus. I don't know if you like when you read your way through the Gospels, if you get that feeling, you know, you're like, oh, I just wish I was there. You know, I just wish I was, I was dead when he said, you know, whoever is without sin should cast the first stone, you know. Or when he was on the cross and he said, you know, in, even then he had a heart for forgiveness and mercy. And he said, forgive them, Father, for they know not what they do, you know. And it's just when he preached the Sermon on the Mount. And it's just the most incredible and powerful sermon still that was ever said to this day, I think. You know, and every moment with, with Jesus it just have been wonderful to experience. But I think there is one moment in the life of Jesus that I really wouldn't have liked to have experienced. And this is the moment when he turns up to the topsy-turvy church. And just to give you an idea of what it's like to be topsy-turvy, I I came across this um, poem. (laughs) And it says this, In the topsy-turvy land, the people walk upon their heads. The sea is made of sand, and children go to school by night in the topsy-turvy land. The front door step is at the back. You're walking when you stand. You wear your hat upon your feet in the topsy-turvy land. The buses on the sea you'll meet while pleasure boats are planned to travel up and down the streets of the topsy-turvy land. You pay for what you never get. I think it must be grand for when you go, you're coming back in the topsy-turvy land. I mean, you get the idea of this topsy-turvy land. Everything is upside down. Priorities are inverted. Things are not how they should be. It's like this upside down world. You know, a bit like the land down under, isn't it? (laughs) Like when I came to Australia, I was so pleasantly surprised that people weren't walking on their heads. But but, uh, seriously, Jesus turns up to this uh, temple. And the moment he walks in, he gets this overwhelming feeling that he just stepped in to this upside down world of the topsy turvy land. And um, just to give you an idea of what is happening, um, could you open your Bible to John 2:13 to 25? So I'm just going to read it. It's John 2, um, 13 to 25. When it was almost time for the Jewish Passover, um, Jesus went up to Jerusalem. In the temple court, 
he found men selling cattle, sheep, and doves, and others sitting at the tables exchanging money. So he made a whip out of cords and drove all from the temple area, both sheep and cattle. He scattered the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables. To those who sold doves, he said, Get those out of here. How dare you turn my father's house into a market? His disciples remembered that it was written, Zeal for the house of the Lord shall consume me. Then the Jews demanded of him, What miraculous sign can you show us to prove your authority to do all this? Jesus answered them, Destroy this temple and I will raise it again in three days. This is a very intense scene, a scene of high emotion. I mean, Jesus was so angry, so angry that he became violent. And, you know, throughout his life, Jesus had this incredible love. He demonstrated a life of incredible love and, and patience and kindness and generosity and humility and compassion for others. I mean, we often call him the meek and mild Jesus, don't we? Yet here, He's like his whole persona changes. And, I mean, he could have had a different approach, couldn't he? He could have said, came in and said, Oh, excuse me, guys, wouldn't it be great if you could all just stop doing what you're doing and, you know, we could spend some time in prayer or something. But in the loudness and the busyness of the place, do you think that anybody would have listened? Do you think that anybody would have cared? I mean, he had to shout. He had to overturn their tables to put his point across. I mean, here he is, this 30-year-old man from Nazareth, out of all places. You know, he's at the start of his ministry, and he's not very well known or not very well thought of. And just because he produced some really good wine at a wedding, does he think that he has... Um, the authority to come in here and tell us what to do and comment on the spiritual qualities of the temple and call this place a house of merchandise? You know, they start questioning his authority. They say, prove your authority to do this. Who gives you the right to come in here and tell us what to do? I mean, we see this over and over again. Throughout Jesus' ministry, people questioning and undermining his authority. By whose authority do you teach? By whose authority do you uh, heal and drive out demons and perform miracles? And by whose authority do you overturn our tables? We see Jesus at the start of his ministry here in John. And um, you would think that he would be out to make friends with all the temple people and the priests, you know. But no, he's out to please God. And this sin that was unfolding before him was unpleasing, was displeasing to God. And he was ready to confront everyone. He was ready to turn the house upside down because it was a sinful and corrupt house. I mean, the passion and the zeal that he has for his father's house, it's so consuming. It burns within his heart, and he can't contain himself any longer. And they need to know 
kids fired up and, and um, you know, something has got to change. They need to know that something has got to change, that this is not a place of sacrifice. It's a place of worship. It's a place of prayer. It's my father's house, he says. It's a place of encountering God. People, you see, they were in the temple, but they did not have the spirit of the temple. Um, they were out of, of sync with the whole purpose that God had for his house. And he makes a whip out of cords, and he chases people out of the temple because they made it into a house of merchandise. It was a place of sacrifice, a market, and they all came there for their personal gain, you know, to just display their produce at this market, to showcase their stuff, and they were not there to encounter God. I mean, this act of physically cleansing the temple and chasing people out of the temple, I think it must have had a special significance to Jesus as he did this on two very important occasions. In John, it's recorded, the passage I just read, it's recorded that, that he did it at the start of his ministry. But he actually did this at the end of his ministry. And if you'd like to turn with me to Matthew 21, um, starting with verse 12. Jesus entered the temple area and drove out all who were buying and selling there. He overturned their tables of the money changers and the benches of those selling doves. It is written, he said to them, my house shall be called a house of prayer. Yet you turned it into a den of robbers. We see Jesus here again at the end of his ministry. You know, it's the Passover week this time. And he knows that he's just days away from facing the cross. It's four days away from the Passover. And he makes it his mission again to cleanse the temple. And this time, you could say it's a more mature Jesus. I mean, it's three years on. But the same passion, same fire, same authority. He sees that nothing has changed. The people are still buying and selling and still concerned with their own affairs and no regard for God. No regard for God or for the house of God. And this, like, totally irritates him once more. And for a second time, he loses his meek and mildness nature that he has again. And he walks in and he's like a hurricane. You know, he's like this thunder, like this great and mighty wind. He's wind, you know, he's like this bulldozer that comes in and just overturns their tables. He's like a wild, you know, rhino that's just let loose in the temple. And his voice trumpets this one thing. Just one thing. He says, my house shall be called a house of prayer. I mean, how sad that they didn't listen the first time, you know. That they actually questioned his authority. 
instead of looking at the zeal and the passion that he had and that, at his desire to please his Father in heaven. I mean, Jesus was consumed by this zeal that he had throughout his ministry. But they were consumed by something else. They were consumed by their greed for money, for personal gain, for the things of this earth. And how sad that they didn't take on board any of his teachings. And you see, Jesus, in his presence and in his authority, he kicks them all out. He is furious and he's angry. And he says, my house shall be called a house of prayer. Yet you turned it into a den of robbers. A den of robbers. You see, in ancient Israel, there was a great distinction between a thief who was out to steal something and a robber who actually had a lifestyle of crime and killing. And, and he calls the temple a den of robbers. I mean, what he's saying, he's saying it's killing the church. It's killing the spirit of the church. I mean, you could say this is all well and true in Jesus' time when people were buying and selling in the temple and bringing, you know, their sacrifices and not focusing on God. But surely our modern churches, they are not um, dens of robbers. Surely they are houses of prayer. And today... I'm going to um, unmask a few things that actually stop or rob our churches from being houses of prayer. And by looking at those money changers, the buyers and the sellers, we can easily identify what robbed them from encountering God and what can rob us today. And um, so I call them thieves in God's house because it robs and kills our churches from being houses of prayer. So thief number one, I think it's busyness. You know, the people were in the temple, that were in the temple, they were busy. They were just too busy for God. And, and Jesus chased them out, and they were busy, and so are we. I mean, tell me if you're not busy, you know, raise up your hand. You know, our lives are just becoming increasingly more busier, busier and busier. And you see, God requires not just the first fruits of our money, He requires the first fruits of our time. You know, in our busy society, it's, um, time is becoming more precious than money. Yet God would say to us, Put me first. Don't make busyness your God. You know, I don't know, but when we plan out things in our diary, when we schedule the things that we are going to do for our week, maybe we need to put in the things of God first. You know, and then after that, we can, we can put in for our fishing and meeting clubs and you know, stargazing, and I don't know what you're all into. 
not that I'm into any of this. But but maybe we need to schedule the things of God first, you know, because we seem to have time for every other meeting except the prayer meeting. You see, um, when when uh, Mark sent out the the email about what they were gonna do in Fiji each day, I thought it was awesome that that he didn't just give the activities of what they were gonna do there. He actually scheduled in the prayer time, which I thought it was awesome. You know, each morning, a devotion time with God. And maybe we all need to just pull out our diaries and write in, you know, time with God, time with God. Maybe that's what we need to do. Because we are simply becoming too busy for God and for the things of God. And if we don't have time, to pray, and to pray together as a church, then I think there is something wrong with our schedule. Don't you think? Are we too busy for God? Are we too busy for God? Because if we are, then we maybe need to sacrifice some idols. We need to give up some things. Is it work, entertainment, sports, friends, whatever it is? I don't know. You know, but busyness is the giant and the thief that we got to slay because it's robbing our churches from being houses of prayer. Those money changers and the people that were selling animals, they were getting people ready to offer um, their money offerings and sacrifices, you know, but God did not want that. You know, God didn't want their offerings and sacrifices. He wanted a personal encounter with them in prayer. And these days, I think we have substituted the animal offerings, you know, sometimes for our fancy church programs. And I think too many programs can rob and kill our churches from being houses of prayer. The church program is just another word for busyness, but this time at the church level. You see, program-driven churches can cause major spiritual decline, and just as busyness in our own private life can cause spiritual decline, so do too many programs in church. Churches begin to lose their substance, to lose their mission and purpose, and we are here to encounter God every Sunday. And in this house of prayer, we pray. Yet how often don't we fall into the trap of making sure that everything sounds great and looks great and, you know, that every chair is aligned and, and God would, would, um, would just want to come in, in here and say, guys, guys, stop, just simply, a house of prayer. You know, he would want to say, put aside your busyness and your programs and encounter me. You know, come and pray. Just simply a house of prayer. You know, I love the fact that at Catholic Church we have actually introduced as part of our program um, an open time of prayer because we want this church to be a house of prayer. You know, and this might inconvenience some, and it might stretch us a little, but it's what it's what God desires. 
you know, it's, it's prayer, not programs. In Amos 5 says this, I hate, I despise your religious feasts. I cannot stand your assemblies. Even though you bring me your burnt offerings and grain offerings, I will not accept them. Though you bring me your choice of fellowship offerings, I will have no regard for them. Away with the noise of your songs. I will not listen to the music of your heart. You see, harsh words, but true, so true. Because God is not impressed by anything that we do. And we need to come humbly before him every Sunday. You know, we need to come humbly before him, even before the service starts, and say, Lord, we need you. We desperately need you, Lord. And we are here, Lord God, to offer you our hearts and not our programs, not the programs that you detest, so God. I think piece number three would be personal preferences. See, the, the, the temple people that were in the outside court, they preferred to be doing their own thing rather than to be doing the God thing. Uh, so today, we kind of make church what we want it to be, according to our own preferences. And we sometimes forget that it is God's house. See, what Jesus is saying here, he's like, it is my house. It is my house, you know. It's not, it's not the, the Wilkinson's house and the Eckhart's house and, I don't know, you know, the Hargrave's house and the Wilson's house. He's saying, it's my house. So if it's God's house, then we got to make it what he wants it to be and not what we want it to be. I mean, if the Lord desires a house of prayer, then he has got to have a house of prayer. I mean, you often hear people say, I want church to be fun. I want church to be relevant. I want church to be seeker sensitive. I want church to meet my needs. I want church to make me feel good. But the thing is, it's not about what we want. It's about what God wants. See, we need to make sure that we align our personal preferences with what God desires. And that we don't allow our personal preferences to rob our churches from being houses of prayer. Thief number four, I would say, is sin. You see, the money changers were making profit, a huge profit. The people that were selling animals, they were putting up their prices. I mean, they were greedy for money. And here in this passage, the big sin that is highlighted is the sin of greed and the sin of corruption. They were hungry for money, but not hungry for God. And their desire for money was actually blocking them from encountering God. They wanted to do business and accumulate wealth rather than be in the Lord's presence. presence. And in saying this, I think any sin has the capacity to rob us from being people of, of prayer and the house of prayer. Because that's what sin does, doesn't it? It separates us from God and it keeps us in the outer court 
I mean, it could be the sin of greed, but it could be the sin of pride because we just don't see our need to rely on God and our dependency on Him for every breath that we take. And someone, someone actually said to me once, you know why um, there aren't more people uh, praying? Because when we actually come into a prayer meeting, when we actually come and encounter God, it's like this big light shines on top of us, and it's like you come under the microscope, and all of a sudden, you know, you start getting convicted of everything that's in your heart, you know, and you start realizing that you're maybe harboring greed and hate and pride and envy and jealousy and anger and immorality, whatever it is. And we often don't like to be confronted with our own sins. So we shy away from it. But our sins can rob us from being people of prayer and the house of prayer that the Lord desires. And thief number five, I would say it's excuses. I mean, <laughs> yeah, I got plenty of those. <laughs> Especially for not cooking. Like, um, <laughs> but... Sorry, that wasn't planned, but it just kind of came. Uh, <laughs> the, the ridiculous thing is that the people that Jesus was chasing out of the temple um, actually were meant to be there. Yet they, they were people that were selling animals. I mean, they had to be there. If people had to, because people had to go and offer their sacrifices to the temple court. So they had to be there to assist people in doing this, you know. And then the money changers. I mean, if you were a good Jew, you couldn't um, pay your te temple tax with Roman or Greek money. And you had to be there to, they had to be there to assist people in changing their money and making their proper donation. And, and there were some people that just, you know, kind of carrying stuff through the temple and, and taking a shortcut, you know, to save some time. And they could have had plenty of excuses as to why it was more important to buy and sell and, and carry on with their business than to participate in prayer and to encounter God. But you see, what Jesus did, he chased them out. He didn't give them time for excuses and to justify themselves. He did not care for their, their excuses. And we could bring God numerous excuses but if we allow our programs to replace prayer our busyness to become our god our financial security and freedom to replace our need to rely on god then what we are doing is actually adopting a topsy-turvy style of doing church Imagine this. Imagine Jesus coming back here, you know, 2,000 years later, and coming in and overturning some tables and some chairs and saying, My house shall be called a house of prayer. Yet you turned it into a den of robbers. 
with your business and programs and personal preferences and excuses and sins. Imagine if he came in here and he did that. Imagine if he would get a big banner and if he would write on it, my house shall be called a house of prayer and stick it right up here at the front. Because all these things are killing the church from what God desires it to be. See, a church that doesn't pray is a dead church. I mean, you might as well just close the door and call it quit. Because we can put in a hundred million programs and do our evangelism and whatever else. But if prayer is not the cornerstone of what we do, then what we are doing is playing church. Because if our churches are not houses of, play, of prayer, then let me tell you, we are playing church because it's not the ecclesia that Jesus and the apostles wanted to institute. It's a topsy-turvy model that does not honor God for who he really is. And God would say to us today, unlike the people that were in the temple, that he chased us, that the people that, were in, that he chased out, that were in the outside courts, and they were concerned with their own affairs and the earthly and mundane things, God would say to us today, put aside all of that and be concerned with the things of God. I want you to be godly. I want you to run after the things of God. You know, to be a Mary and not a Martha. So what would God want, want us to do? Well, God would want us, firstly, to, um, to be clean. See, he uh, wanted a clean temple, and he wants us to be clean. Because our bodies are the temples of the Holy Spirit, the place where his spirit resides. And God would say to us today, be clean. Be clean of busyness, of sin, of excuses. You see, remove some idols. Chase some things out of your life and clean your temple and make room for God. First Thessalonians 4.7 says, God did not call us to be impure, but to live a holy life. And it is increasingly harder in our society to live holy and godly lives. But God requires us to be godly and holy, to be clean. He does not receive our sacrifices if they are made in an unclean temple. The Spirit of God cannot reside in an unclean temple. Be holy like I am holy, says the Lord. A holy and clean temple is what the Lord desires. Well, secondly, God would want us to be close, to be in the inner core, you know, and not to linger out, you know, around the outer core. You see, if you look at this passage in Matthew again, um, Jesus comes to the temple and uh, he is frustrated that people are not praying. 
but I'm pretty sure that there somewhere in the inner court, there were some religious leaders and some priests, you know, saying their most eloquent prayers. I'm sure there was a select few doing this. And, and you see, the temple was divided in five sections because it has had like five different degrees of holiness back then. And it was the outer court where all this was happening and where people were buying and selling stuff where Jesus came. And this was accessible to everyone, even the Gentiles. Then it was the court of the Israelites. And it was also known the court of women because even women were allowed to go that far. And, and both men and, and women could enter this court and, and talk to the priests and, and pray and observe the proceedings and bring their sacrifices. Further on was the court of the priests, when only the priests could enter. And, and lastly, it was the Holy of Holies, and we all know this. It was accessible only once a year by the high priest. And I mean, you could argue with Jesus and say, Jesus, you're not being fair. There are people praying in this temple. You just go to the inner court, to the courts of the priests, and you'll find them there. But let me tell you what Jesus is saying here. He's saying prayer is everyone's responsibility, even more than that. He's saying prayer is everyone's privilege. It's not just for a select few. Doesn't it strike you? that Jesus in, is not inviting them in, that he's actually chasing them out. He finds them in the outer court, busy doing their own thing, and he says, get out of here. I mean, hot in, cold out. You either come right close, right into the Holy of Holies, and encounter God, or out you go, because you cannot linger in the outer court. And if God's house, is a house of prayer, then we got to be people of prayer ourselves. The interesting fact is that they were in the outer court and they were not people of prayer. I mean, what was happening in the inner court? Prayer. People were praying there. You see, every time we attend a prayer meeting, you enter the inner court. You get close to God. And, and in fact, the closer you are to God, the more time you spend in prayer. Isn't that right? So what Satan wants to do is to keep us busy with our own life, to put obstacles in our way, and to keep us in the outer court as much as possible. And we, we can't just live life in the outer court. we got to come close. We got to encounter God. And lastly, God wants us to be committed to prayer. Prayer and our desire to pray should really flow through our veins. It should be part of our makeup. It should be our DNA. I mean, we shouldn't need to advertise our prayer meetings, should we really? They should be filled to the overflow. It should be the most popular place to be. I mean, come on, the Jews go to the synagogue and they pray twice every single day. The Muslims, they stop. They just simply stop doing whatever they are doing and they pray five times a day. 
Doesn't our God deserve better than that? My house shall be called a house of prayer. Why? Well, because prayer is the tool that God has chosen to release his power. If we want to see lives changed, then we got to pray. If we want to see souls saved, then we got to pray. If we want to see circumstances altered, then we got to pray. We have to become people and a church that is devoted and committed to prayer. You know why? Because our ministries are only as powerful as our devotion to prayer. Isaiah 56, 7 says, The burnt offerings and sacrifices will be accepted on my altar, for my house will be called a house of prayer for all nations. When we become people of prayer, when our churches become houses of prayer, then the Lord will accept our sacrifices and offerings. Prayer should be the cornerstone of everything that we do. A house that is built on prayer is accepted by God and will actually stand the test of time because He is before all things and in Him all things hold together. Even though this passage that we had a look at, we see Jesus as being angry and furious, and he's rather frightening. It is really not fear that should drive us to pray as a church, but the zeal and the love for God and the benefit, both earthly and eternal, of changed lives, a vibrant church, a transformed community, city, nation, and even the world. Amen. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, I want to thank you, Father, that you're here, that you are here today, that your spirit is with us, Lord, that you desire this house of prayer, Lord, to be a house of prayer, and for us, to be people of prayer. Father, will you make us according to your will? Will you make us the people that you want us to be, Lord? Will you help us to put aside some of the things of this, this world that, is, that are just keeping us in the outer court, that are keeping us away from encountering the sweetness of the presence of God. Lord, will you make us the people and the church that you want us to be? Father, will you bring us close to you? And Lord, we give you glory because in this way the Holy Spirit resides for God. Because we are a church of prayer. Because we are people that are hungry for you, Lord. That because we are people that desire an encounter with the living God. Because we are people full of zeal and full of passion for you, Jesus. In Jesus' name I pray.
Amen.